0: Welcome. This is Coppercast, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful and technical world of institutional investment into digital assets. I'm your host, Fadi Aboualfa, Copper's Head of Research, and our guest today is Gordon Lau, Chief Economist at Circle, issuer of USDC. Welcome, Gordon.
1: Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here.
0: Gordon, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up becoming the chief economist over at Circle.
1: Yeah, so my whole career has been centered around different parts of finance. Started out my career in traditional finance as a portfolio manager for the Harvard Endowment. Later on, uh, worked at the Federal Reserve and uh, both did research as well as uh, looked into policy issues related to digital currencies. When the topic of stablecoins first came up, um, that was brought up, Uh, Starting with the Libra DM project and later on iterated through different versions of it, that really fascinated me as it is an area where I see the promise of innovation could make a fundamental change to financial marketing infrastructure uh, from a practitioner's view of solving some of the challenges that I have seen uh, in financial markets. Uh, before joining Circle, I uh, did a stunt at uh, Uniswap Labs, uh, leading research there, where I also got to experience the full promise of using programmable smart contracts to make financial markets work. At Circle, my role is as the chief economist is to set an economic agenda for the firm, as well as to think about the long-term business model involving uh, payment stable coins, or sometimes I like to call it tokenized cash.
0: So you've, uh, you've kind of experienced uh, lots of arms that are involved in this space right now. Um, uh, and one of the things that Circle has just gone through is the effectively the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank uh, and uh, other banks that have been sort of servicing crypto firms. Tell us what was going on behind the scenes uh, in this 2023 banking liquidity crisis, and what circles' position on it.
1: Yeah, for many that have thought that you know crypto would be the risk to banking, what we have experienced just now is the uh, reverse of that. In that, banking system imported risk into digital assets, into particular tokenized cash, uh, into USDC, and that was. Part of the reason for how that risk was imported is because uh, USDC, uh, the Circles uh, stablecoin product, still relies on the banking rails for the important aspect of making redemptions and issuance to occur over traditional fiat banking rails. And the separation of payments from banking I think is actually critically needed uh, for digital assets to be safeguarded in some way from potential uh, issues that come up in the banking sector. So what we have just experienced with SVB is in some ways uh, quite different than um, the 2008 crisis in that in this case, it is a medium-sized regional bank that was taking not complex derivative type of risk as it was in 2008, rather it was rather simple risk of interest rate exposure Uh, more than half their portfolio were held in Treasuries and MBS securities. Which also kind of raised the question of traditionally we think of banks as a um, entity that does liquidity transformation and credit transformation. We think of banks using self-information to make out loans. Yet in this case, it seems like what the banks are holding are essentially public market securities. And, you know, in some ways it does raise the question of uh, should the bank have been that large? Given that it, they were not necessarily making loans out, uh, and they were um, doing some part of the maturity transformation that could have done could have been done elsewhere, uh, potentially through bond funds and other uh, market entities.
0: Now, from from what I understand, Circle had approximately three point three billion held at SVB. What, what percentage of the total cash portfolio was that?
1: Yeah, so as we disclose publicly, uh, we hold the vast majority around, usually around 80% of our portfolio in T-bills. Right? These are T-bills with relatively short maturity of generally less than three months. Our average duration is actually much less than that. Um, and then the remaining 20% on average, um, I the, the exact number for... Um, uh, last week was uh, was probably around uh, a little bit more than twenty percent are held in the banking system as a liquidity buffer that could be drawn up on to fulfill issuance and redemptions. Um, at the time, Silicon Valley Bank represented three point three billion dollars of our uh, cash holdings, and our cash holdings. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but. It's probably the vast majority of it was held um, in another bank, uh, Banker, New York, Mellon, which is a uh, what is known as a global systemically important banking institution. Um, But as we have seen over the course of the last couple of weeks, we have seen uh, three banks that went under first with Signature or first with uh, Silvergate, then with SVB, then with the takeover of Signature are occurring in a short span of time. And in many ways that made managing the uh, bank depository cash component of our portfolio quite challenging as well as we are trying to de-risk and reduce our exposure. And um, yet each uh, each time we, uh, we solve one problem, uh, another banking issue comes up. Uh, but through this experience, I think we're at a much stronger place where um, we will um, likely strengthening our portfolio even more by reducing the exposures uh, to the banking sector of course without gaining access to the direct payment rails such as fedwire or ach transfer we always would have to have some sort of exposure to banking Uh, in that way we had to use the payment rails and for that we had to have some liquidity buffers around
0: so I have a bit of a question because a lot of people were talking about sort of the 250,000 limit that the FDIC ensures. And um, to me, to me there's, there's an interesting thing happening here that I, I don't know if people are talking about this or if I've understood this incorrectly. But correct me if I'm wrong. If I'm a high net worth individual, let's say I have a million dollars in a bank, I am effectively covered to 250,000. Is that correct?
1: You're covered to two hundred fifty thousand per account, and that is the typical FDIC insurance. Of course, you can spread it out into, you know, multiple bank accounts at different banks. Uh, but for each bank account, typically, when it's covered
0: at each bank account. But if I held, if I held over, let's let's just argue that SVB failed, and it didn't fail because it had a liquidity crisis because of their their duration and the risk assets, it actually failed because it just did bad, bad risk management and lost people's deposits. So let's argue the FDIC had to come in and say, we're giving $250,000 to all these accounts. And the peg dropped on USDC to 0.88 from what I remember. So if I'm a high net worth individual holding a million dollars in USDC, it seems to me that I'm better off taking a haircut on my USDC at 880000 then keeping it and get at a bank at 250000
1: So, you know, generally speaking, we think that full reserve model of providing uh, these type of store value services is safer than a fractional reserve uh, type of model that banks often practice, because you have this liquidity mismatch where you have either illiquid loan portfolios or interest exposure on the asset side and run a on the uh, liability side of banks. Now for Circle, you um, brought out that it is true that during the weekend in which the banking rails were down, there, there was no way to, uh, to process payments at that time. And there isn't, um, you know, and also uh, as we've seen, Signature Bank was also late in taking off um, the peg, the price of USDC uh, in the secondary market did trade as low as uh, I think 88 cents on a dollar. Uh, but that is to caveat that secondary market activity is a relatively small portion uh, of the conversion between fiat and digital currency for USDC. Uh, the vast majority, I think 95% of the volume are actually coming from uh, primary market. What is primary market in this case is direct issuance and redemption from Circle uh, occurring during banking hours in which we could transfer, say, our cash holdings at Bank of New York, Maryland, or a- another bank directly to our customers. So that has never changed. It was occurring at parity at a one-to-one price. Um, what happens in the secondary market is a bit beyond our control.
0: Sure, but but it's it's here's here's the, the, the thing with the maths that, that that I want to go back to a bit. Because you hold 80% in T-bills, it seems to me that there is a floor effectively um on the price of USDC. There is a floor on it because you've got the short-term securities that are backing the majority of the of the whole reserve. So even in, in an argument where Circle has its um cash deposited in multiple institutions and various institutions even if they all fail circle seems to me and usdc seems to me like a safer asset to hold than an actual commercial bank deposit
1: i think you're right about that and in particular also even if some of these banks fail the recovery rate of um, uninsured deposit is still quite high Uh, so even without the prudential regulator stepping in it is more, it's very likely that um, the depositors would be made at least uh, would recover a significant portion of uh, their deposits, regardless. So from a expected value standpoint, absolutely you're right that um, the value of the underlying portfolio uh, was always uh, very close to one, even if the f- federal regulators did not step in.
0: Right. Um, I think I just will have sort of one more question towards this whole scenario and the situation before we move on to other things. And it's it, it, I think this is a good segue sort of USDC sort of returned to its peg extremely quickly. Um, and in the past, we've seen other sort of fiat backed stable coins depeg on rumors. And it took them for a while for them to regain parity. Uh, in essence, despite a real crisis, uh, markets were very efficient because of the full transparency that Circle has. And the question that I have is, how do you think markets will react in the future to various news events surrounding not only Circle, but potentially other FIs that might start minting stablecoins um, to events? Do you think there there's a possibility that Markets start taking a character of their own, bordering on sort of quasi-equity stables. In the case of tokenized commercial bank money,
1: could you clarify what uh, what do you mean by equity stables in this case? Do you mean
0: so? So if a if a bank fails, the 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 depositors will receive effectively equity into that bank as compensation for their losses. Is it possible that markets end up valuing stable coins if it's a sort of a commercial bank money in that sense?
1: Yeah, so it's actually, um, I I wouldn't say that when when a bank fails, the equity entirely gets wiped out, right? Depositors almost are always much higher on the um, liability ladder that they're the first ones to be made whole than perhaps some level of unsecured debt holders are made partly whole and then uh, equity is whatever is remaining uh, to be uh, distributed so i would say that you know this event definitely taught the industry a lesson Um, it taught us also uh, a lesson in being even more careful with our exposure to the banking sector and perhaps allocating even more to um, T bills, uh, rather than gaining too much exposure to to certain type of banks. Um, of course, the uh, what we currently hold in cash, as we disclose, largely are in the safest banks that are globally systematically important, and that would be protected in many ways because they are GSIPS because they are uh, really important institutions in our uh, society. So, I think. If anything, um, looking at how this quick deep hack during the weekend, and as soon as the banking rails were established, as soon as also we made clear that we would be able to make um, everyone whole, uh, given our ability to also uh, tap into our corporate resources and potentially even external resources that set a very strong signal and that um, helped the price to recovery in the secondary market.
0: So, I think in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of stable coins designs, and there's a lot of difficulties in creating a good stable coin. What do you think some of those challenges are, and how do you believe that stable coins should be structured in the future, given the recent events?
1: Yep. So, I have uh, you know, several thoughts on that. One is I do think. Stable coins, or sometimes I like to call it tokenized cash, needs to be uh, very transparent in what it's holding. We don't want a um, a, a, a structure that hides various types of risk, whether it is liquidity transformation risk or the risk of taking on uh, volatile exposures to other assets. Whether we want relatively high quality liquid asset of a short term duration, which is typically what Circle holds um, to be the main assets that's backing one-to-one for the liability that the payment stablecoin issuers are responsible for. Two is, I do think we need better regulation at this critical moment that uh, makes sure that payment stablecoins and tokenized issuers are set to a certain standard. And of course, we are currently regulated by the same standards that are regulating the payment service providers under money transmitter rules. So the same regulations that, um, that say Stripe or Apple Pay and PayPal follows are the ones that were being regulated as well, but we do need a better standard that um, regulates the asset liability mix of payment service providers uh, at a federal level. And I do also think that um, it is important for payment stablecoins to have proper disclosure and proper attestation and audits um, that shows it's basically what it has on right. the book could support the liabilities.
0: So n- now that you mentioned liabilities and regulations, um, I'd like to quickly jump into a few things that we saw last year. Um, one was the Federal Reserve's announcement with. From their new york innovation center and that they're piloting wholesale cbdc and commercial bank money um, although the federal reserve's tone has just generally not changed um, in regards to this technology uh, the pilot that they're doing is definitely indicative of something that's happening at the u.s central bank uh, and a lot of folks are, are concerned about potential government and regulatory overreach in a scenario that a cbdc is created I personally take a position that it's not the technology of CBDC that's scary, but the policies that might come attached to a CBDC. I read Circle's Chief of Strategy Officer, uh, Dante Desparte,'s um, super interesting piece, The Case Against Central Bank Digital Currency, which is definitely worth a read for everyone listening. Uh, one of the things that I remember him discussing was that people should have the right to access decentralized currency. But Circle also has certain powers um whether it needs to comply with AML policies and KYC policies to either block or freeze USDCs in terms of these assets my question is who draws these lines how how can we engage with government and the federal reserve to showcase that we can build a technology that's safe and sound and who sets who sets the rules at the end of the day
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I think you brought out a couple of pieces in that question. One is about the differentiation between what uh, central banks are doing with uh, potential CBDC design, and what um, some private sector um, banks are um, also promoting, which is a form of tokenized deposits or tokenized commercial bank money, which is fractionally reserved. And then also how we should think about uh, integrating payments, stablecoin, tokenized cash into the financial system even more. Uh, I'll start with the last one and this is kind of a follow up to um, your earlier question about optimal design. I do think that one way to safeguard tokenized cash is to have direct access to the payment rails. So, you know, if you think about how USDC current uh, asset mix is, it is roughly 80% in T-bills and 20% in uh, commercial bank deposits. If there is direct access to the payment rails, that is a Fed master account, uh, perhaps that 20% could be, uh, it doesn't have to be as much as 20%, and perhaps a smaller part of it could directly be held at the Federal Reserve that could be used for wire transfers, that could be used for uh, interaction with the traditional payment rails. That reduces the risk of stablecoin quite significantly and also potentially make. Um, tokenized cash a part of the uh, core financial infrastructure that supports um, everyday transfer of value. Now, I think tokenized deposit and CBDC, we could go on uh, forever about it. CBDC obviously has uh, multiple meaning as well. There's retail facing CBDC as well as wholesale CBDC designs. What really differentiate between all three are whose liability is it? for a central bank digital currency, it is the liability of central bank. Um, But one could argue that, you know, if you were to open up more access to the payment rails, that is access to Fedwire and the forthcoming FedNow system to a broader array of institutions that hold small amount of reserves at the central bank, that's essentially a wholesale CBDC. that could potentially also serve the purpose of making sure that uh, there is uh, some level of competition and some levels of uh, redundancy in the system that even if certain banks uh, collapses payrolls can still be made that um, payments could still function without uh, banking so that's my thought on uh, the interaction between CBDC and the payment system. Now, you mentioned the New York project, New York Fed project, um, a pilot project on commercial bank or tokenized deposit, I think it's called the the regulated uh, liability Liability
0: network. Network. Yeah, that's right.
1: Um, And if anything, the uh, episode of SVB collapsing and affecting um, USDC in the process is a showcase that tokenized deposits uh could actually be very much runnable it's it's almost out of question at this point that if you put deposits on a blockchain that could um, move around 24 7 at the speed of internet uh, in the fractional reserve type of deposit system you would actually uh, enable runs even faster Um, so I do think fractional reserve money on blockchain is potentially uh, could pose more systemic risk than is what it's trying to solve.
0: Well, it's 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 interesting that what's, what's happening right now, because this was the main concern that the BIS was sort of highlighting three, four or five years ago about potential bank runs. And I think this is probably one of the main reasons why there isn't a concrete agreement on the design of a CBDC. But it seems to me that there are some new philosophies of money that are changing. One of them is the fractional reserve health of the system. And especially with the latest sort of funding that the Federal Reserve is giving as a backstop for the liquidity of the dated assets, has there been a shift in monetary policy right now with what we're seeing with SVB, is in, does time not matter if the lender of last resort is always going to come in and backstop those dated
1: assets? Yeah, I think there is a very significant shift undergoing uh, with the response, a swift response of financial regulators, including the Fed, uh, which was much needed at the time to stop the contagion and stop spillovers of risk into the real economy. At the same time it created unintended consequences of one, um, in some ways offering implicit guarantee for all deposits, uh, and two, uh enlarging the role of the Federal Reserve with the um, bank term funding program, the BTF program, which mm-hmm. recently have um already have had some take up. This program essentially are allowing um, commercial banks to swapping their collaterals at par value for a loan from the Fed for up to the term of one year. That's I, if you think about it, it's actually quite counterintuitive that one of the lessons that we learned through the SVB episode is we should actually value things more at market value rather than at par value. Uh, the SVB, as well as many banks, I believe is Currently, um, FDIC previously estimated around $600 billion of unrealized losses on FDIC-insured uh, banks. Um, that is not realized because the, the accounting of these assets are to maturity assets. But um, the, the fact that you have the Federal Reserve coming in and offering this program, valuing the loans at par, actually is, in some ways, uh, continuing this trend of let's not take market value seriously, let's rely on the par value. And in some way, the Fed would take on additional um, unsecured credit risk as a process of that as well. Now, I think we're on this trend of um, certainly more regulation and bigger balance sheet for both commercial banks and for the Fed. And this, I think, creates, uh, enlarges the risk of too big to fail in uh, certain banking institutions. And mm-hmm. we have already seen also uh, a flight of deposits from smaller debasitory institutions to the larger GSIBs or global systematic important banks. And this trend of too big to fail and this trend of larger balance sheet, both at the central bank and at a commercial bank, is really difficult to reverse. And I think one way of potentially reversing this trend and de risking the banking system is by actually unbundling banking and unbundling payment from banking specifically, that uh, reduces the complexity of um, the banks. And at the same time, um, could also reduce systemic risk. Now, the Fed has been in this fight against inflation for uh, the last couple of quarters or last year. And um, its outlook has been prior to SVB's collapse that it will continue to raise interest rate. Now adding in this additional dimension of having to worry about systemic risk implications of raising interest rates too quickly or keeping interest rate high, um, the Fed is reconsidering its path and the likely outcome is a, either a slower pace of interest rate increase or potentially even uh, the cuts on interest rate uh, in the forthcoming uh, couple of quarters. So that makes it even more difficult uh, to fight inflation as a result. Um, so I think this systemic risk issue that is created um, by SBB's collapse and by the insuring regulations has wide-ranging implications for the immediate Fed outlook and also the long-term concentration of banking activities and competition issues.
0: Gordon, I feel like we're in a in a little bit of a twilight zone right now when it comes to the monetary policy, because the reality is right now is that we can argue that the failure of, of SVB is not exactly a bailout, but there is quantitative easing. So it's a completely new dimension that's being added into an inflationary storm that they don't know how to handle. And so Everybody's trying to wrap their heads around how do they manage all of this, and it should be interesting to see what's going to happen and whether we're going to see other banks sort of fail or struggle in the future. One other thing that came out last year was from the Bank of England, and interestingly, they decided on a very different approach to piloting a project on, in this space, and they're testing a wallet and have have you heard about this the wallet sort of design that they're trying to
1: yeah get I out? don't know the specifics i, I know they um, have released papers studying digital currency studying uh, both central central bank digital currency as well as private sector efforts uh, but uh, I, I actually do not know about their wallets
0: yeah so it's a, it's it's a it's an interesting take on on how to maybe approach this and they're going with a wallet and I think one of the questions that that keeps popping up is whether there will be enough uptake from from a retail audience, whether there is a CBDC or not. Um, from what I gather, the Bahamas Sands dollar didn't take didn't get too much traction. And they've gone back to the drawing boards with the idea of focusing on the wallet and self custody infrastructure there. Um, do you think that the self custody in an era where a banking crisis can take place will increase. And when I, I mean by that self-custody, I do mean using USDC, you holding your own um, um, uh, keys. Is it is it riskier to secure your seed phase or is it riskier to face potential capital control? Yeah,
1: I think for many that are out there, um, securing seed phase is not a safe activity. And for institutions, that's frankly not possible. To have the idea that you have um, a, a string of private key being stored on anywhere that um, that, that requires employees to to manage, uh, that's very difficult with just a regular seed phase. Of mm. course, there are now newer technologies such as uh, multiparty computation, uh, which I believe you know, copper and fireblocks, as well as uh, Circle's Cybavo acquisition are all trying to do. Um, that sort of innovation in which is not exactly um, traditional self-custody in the sense of keeping a seed phase or ch- keeping in private keys um, on uh, some sort of stored device, whether it's distributed, uh, it is secured through uh, cryptography. Um, it is also secured through uh, kind of distributing the keys amongst various stakeholders uh, within a larger institution. I think that could very well uh, be possible as a future way of um, storing assets uh, on blockchain.
0: Now, for for Circle, I think I think it was last year where Circle introduced the EuroC as well. Um, so I'd like to, to shift our focus a little bit onto a very very important topic that pretty much every single organization I think is focused on, from from the FSB to the IMF to the BIS to all of them which is cross border payments so right now on a on a daily basis there's a 9 trillion counterparty risk in forex markets that is an overhang because markets are operating at different hours because of the slow rails that we still rely on such as swift how how do you see sort of the blockchain era address the cross-border payment market in terms of payment versus payment and is it the goal for Circle to ultimately have master accounts at several different banks across the world? I believe you also entered Singapore
1: recently. That's correct. We recently um, uh, got a uh, license from Singapore. And I I think, you know, at the end of the day, our main product currently is USDC. Um, We have thought about continuing expanding into other currencies, Um, but the value of US dollar, especially during this time, is really important in digital assets, but also in global finance, in global trade. So that will always be our core product. Um, now, you brought up a lot of uh, interesting aspects we can touch on uh, related to the way that blockchain could help in settling payments in the cross-border sense. And one of the fundamental aspects of blockchain, which you know, to developers is known as atomic transaction, right? the, the fact that you cannot make you know, one transaction complete without uh, the uh, outposting leg of the transaction. Um, that in the payment space, uh, in the regulatory space, sometimes it's called payment versus payment or payment versus delivery. Um, by using distributed ledger or public blockchain, essentially you get payment versus payment automatically built in uh, as part of uh, the inf- the core infrastructure of blockchain. Now, the area where this is probably why I um, I, I I think. FX is a very interesting market for, foreign exchange is a very interesting market for um, the use of um, tokens, the use of um, smart contracts to tackle is because we already have a very clear case of tokenizing um, cash in different currencies that could be transacted, that could use the existing infrastructure and framework that's been built out um, by developers um, and whether this is using decentralized exchange such as uh, the UNISOP protocol or um, using um, uh, the self custody nature or using some of the smart contracts that enable collateralized uh, borrowing and lending uh, these infrastructure has is already in place and there are analogous use and analogous instruments uh, and markets in foreign exchange that could directly take advantage of the existing infrastructure, which is why that if you look at some of the efforts by central banks, um, they're actually borrowing elements of decentralized finance. For instance, uh, the BIS has a project uh, right now that uses uh, automated market makers uh, to settle CBDC for three different uh, currencies. I believe it's a joint project between uh, the BRS, the um, one of the Asian central banks and um, the Swiss national central bank and, and, um, and uh, Bank de France. Uh, and they understand the value of atomic settlement or payment versus payment settlement. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the risk of unsettled trade uh, is, a systemic risk, systemic risk, for payments for cross-border payments, and we have the technology today to actually address that risk through the usage of decentralization uh, on um, blockchain as well as smart contracts. So recently, I released a paper with some of my colleagues um, at Circo as well as uh, friends at Uniswap Labs on um, the use of um, blockchain and tokenized cash for transacting uh, and exchanging FX for an exchange. And the results are astonishing in that, you know, through a decentralized mechanism, you could have instant instantaneous settlement, you could have um, payment versus payment delivery of currencies. You could also have uh, some level of liquidity provision that is not flighty in the sense that um, automated market makers uh, enables the end owners and users um, of uh, different um, tokens in this case tokenized cash to be also the liquidity providers that uh, provide the crucial liquidity provision needs in all times of uh, the day all times of the weekend
0: in terms of technology though, Gordon we, we we're still dealing with fairly inefficient blockchain rails and, and i know it's getting better especially with the air 2s that are coming out where does circle see itself positioned within sort of the cross border market in the future i do i do understand why your focus is on usdc because it it, it does sit on i think 80% of of the trades globally um so my question is Can a fully backed reserve stablecoin like USDC support a large value payment system? Or is it going to be a high volume, low payment system for for more of a retail crowd? Or is it sitting in a niche of its own completely entirely into in the sort of space of the Internet of money?
1: I think it's all of the above, right? Uh, We are having there are so many reach out every day from companies of various sizes from remittance providers in say, Africa, Southeast Asia to um, the largest companies that are uh, operating in the space of the internet uh, that are interested in using USDC as a mean of settlement. So I I think we're not limited in any sense because it is truly a form of um, payment that could be used for both small value and large value. I think uh, personally, I'm most excited about the uh, ability for um, for, uh, for for Circle to make an impact in financial inclusion. Um, the data have shown that around 75 percent of USDC enabled wallets on Ethereum hold less than hundred dollars, so a hundred USDC. If you think about that, that's amazing. That's less than the minimum account balance for most banks today. And I do think that it is these type of small value transactions that will make a very large difference in people's lives. For instance, in the remittance market, uh, which is a market that's um, in the hundreds of billions of dollars a year, uh, even just shaving off a fraction of the current cost, which on average is about 6%, according to the World Bank, uh, that is money that directly goes to the end users. To the families are most in need, to migrant workers' families, that could really uplift communities. Um, I think that's personally what I find the most exciting. But that's not to say that you know this technology could not could could could, could not be used for institutional level type of payments, as we have already also seen um, the level of interest we have get. The
0: the remittance space is interesting, because it It is quite expensive it's it is six percent it's actually six point seven percent from the last time I saw and it it gets a lot more expensive on on certain corridors one One of the issues with with the number is firstly the fX conversion itself that's the that's one of the the, the highest cost comes from the fX conversion because it's taking into account volatile currencies and it takes two days to settle, so it's accounting for a large time gap. Until something gets settled and converted. So definitely decentralized automated market makers can make that a lot cheaper. But one of the things that we've noticed, at least when when we're researching this internally, was that there is a demand for cash in terms of the remittances, the, the people prefer the cash, uh, hard, hard, hard money in their hands. And how 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 do you think the crypto space can go? ahead and address that specific need for
1: inclusion? Yeah. So we see USDC as a tokenized cash in that it is a bearer instrument in some form that has you know, probably more transparency than physical cash. Uh, but it does allow peer to peer transfers in any mobile centric device. Of course, there still might be people who prefers holding physical bills. Um, which, by the way, continues to grow, the circulation of physical cash in the world continues to grow, despite the fact that people use less Mm -hmm. uh, physical cash actually for payments because more people are moving towards digital payments. Um, I think the way to address that is to actually also partner with traditional institutions that are at the interface of conversion between uh, fiat cash and digital cash. So for instance, uh, Circle has an ongoing engagement with um, uh, UNHCR in delivering mm-hmm. um, much needed aid to uh, refugees in Ukraine. and That's in partnership with MoneyGram that provides the very last mile solution of converting this tokenized cash format into physical cash that everyday users could use. Of course, that does have some cost to it, um, but the cost of that final last mile solution is not nearly as high as um, what we typically see for all of remittance, because you also bypass many layers uh, in between for the transmission of, um, of value uh, in a corruption-resistant re- form.
0: If I'm not mistaken, uh, I think uh, MoneyGram uh, is using Stellar. Uh, the Stellar's blockchain for, for this uh, initiative, the money exactly. is
1: out, out. Part programs. of the reason uh, for this pilot project is Stellar has uh, very low transaction costs, but that doesn't limit, you know, in the future there could be other blockchains and layer twos that also are partnering uh, in a similar way with humanitarian organizations to deliver and disperse aid.
0: The interfacing of these two, two sort of institutions is very interesting with blockchain and it, it reminds me of It reminds me of um, Project Nexus, if you remember it, from the BIS, where they were basically testing the instant settlement domestic networks and trying to build out cross-border payments in an instant fashion using, using these rails. And I find it interesting that nobody sort of said to themselves, well, we have very efficient domestic rails, Why don't we use blockchains to move money cross borders, but settle everything domestically using the national rails? Is is there any thought process on how we might be able to integrate or interoperate with the current traditional systems and blockchain? Or are we aiming as an industry to replace the current system?
1: I think it's definitely working with the current system. because the traditional payment rails are much needed for everyday transactions, for everyday settlements. Vast majority of uh, merchants and users rely on these uh, traditional payment rails. So for integration of blockchain or distributed ledgers um, with these type of traditional payment rails really just requires the actions of governments in partnership with private sector to make that happen. So in the US, the rollout of the FedNow system um, does have one component of potentially expanding the access to that system to more than just banks. And the US is actually very special in that case that banks almost have exclusive access to payment rails. in other countries, oftentimes you have non-bank financial institutions or even payment service providers that have access to the domestic payment systems. I do think it is a bit of an effort that um, regulators and legislators need to make in terms of opening up that access to payment rails to non-bank financial institutions, whether they are in uh, digital assets or they are in um, non-digital asset space, I think is equally important.
0: It strikes me as one of the most peculiar cases that the U.S. seems to be sort of almost trying to slow down the innovation in crypto. But then I remembered something that the US is also falling behind, even though sort of the legislation came out after the great financial crisis. And that's the addressing open banking. For example, the Europe and UK have very good open banking infrastructure. Even even the Gulf has very strong open banking. The US is far behind this sort of opportunity. Do you think we might face the same possible slow response in terms of crypto? Or do regulators not have an option but to address this at a much faster pace because, because it is an industry that's growing?
1: I do think the US regulators are behind. If you look at what's happening across the pound, in Europe, there is Mika. money in uh, the markets in crypto assets framework that has already gone through the legislative process that is in close to the implementation phase right in asia there are various uh efforts that are pretty far along as well the us has been waiting um but hopefully this year we'll see um, at least some sort of bill um payment stablecoin and potentially also um broader decentralized finance as well I'm very hopeful, um, but it does require the will of politicians as well as uh, regulators to get together and then make progress in fostering innovation that could also safeguard the financial system.
0: Gordon, on that note, I think we can close it today. I think this has been an absolutely eye-opening discussion, and I hope you guys continue to do the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. This podcast has been prepared for informational purposes only without regard to any individual investment objectives, financial situation, or means, and Copper is not soliciting any action based upon it. This podcast is not to be construed as a recommendation or an offer to buy or sell any security, financial product, instrument, or to participate in any particular trading strategy. Certain transactions, including those in digital assets, give rise to substantial risk and are not suitable for all investors. The value of digital assets may go down and your capital and assets may be at risk.